What's going on, everybody? This is Drew here. I want to welcome you all to a brand new episode of Phoenix Down. This is Phoenix Down episode number 61.0. And we're doing something different this time. Uh, I had mentioned it on a previous podcast that uh, I saw the trailer for Ready Player One, which is based on a book. And I said, I've always heard good things about it. And said, why don't we do Ready Player One for Phoenix Down? You know, we're kind of like a game club, which kind of spawned off of a book club. So why not do a book? Um, today I have with me Matt. Hey, guys. And so, yeah, um, Ready Player One is a book written by Ernest Klein. It was published in 2011. Um and you know what? Let's just jump into the history with this. Um, Matt, what is your history with the Ready Player One? I, I don't have a lot of history with it. You know, I've been aware of it ever since it came out. You know, it, it, it certainly hits a lot of the notes and it shows up in pretty much all of the types of sites that I'm frequenting on the internet. So, I mean, I, I've been aware of it since it came out. I've always kind of wanted to read it. I never really pulled the trigger on it until a couple of years ago. I picked up the Kindle version, uh, but even then, never actually took the next step and started reading it. Um, so I've just kind of been looking forward to it. I didn't know much about it other than that it kind of took place inside like an MMO, but that's really about all I knew. Uh, so other than being generally interested in it, I didn't have a, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of firsthand knowledge about it. So I'm looking forward to finally getting through it now. Yeah. I, I have known about this book. It seems like forever. Um, which I mean, hell it's six years old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I read about it like on a website somewhere and then, uh, probably about three years ago, four years ago. um, Jason Gambrell, Gambus Khan, uh, mentioned it on the N4G podcast talking about how a lot of us should read that book because he's really enjoying it. And, you know, he named off tons of things like 80 references and video games and, and movies and all this different stuff. And I was just like, eh, I mean, yeah, it sounds cool, but I'm not a big reader. I never have been. Um, in fact, I could probably name all the books I've ever read, uh, as far as leisure goes. I mean, mm. I've read Lord of the Rings. I've read The Hobbit. I have read the Dark Tower series. Um, it's funny because those aren't necessarily easy breezy reads. They're not. You know, talking Lord of the Rings and the Dark Tower. But the, they're kind of in my wheelhouse of fantasy. Um, yeah. uh, I've always known Stephen King as a, as a reputable writer. And so I was like, huh. And I didn't even know what, when I first got into the dark tower, I didn't even know what that was. So I was, I got my job at security, which I was working the night shift at the time. And it was boring as hell. And I was like, well, fuck it. Let me see if I can find a book to read. So I went to a Barnes and Noble and I just said, I don't know anything about reading as far as like who to read and stuff like that. So I just said, Stephen King, I know I've seen a bunch of Stephen King movies, you know, he's a big writer. And so I looked at the Stephen King section and saw that there was a, uh, not a movie, but a book called the gunslinger. And I was like, huh, he wrote a Western. I was like, that's interesting. And so I looked at the back and I was like, this sounds fucking weird. 
I was like, all right. And it wasn't that long. So I picked it up and fucking fell in love with that book. Then I realized this is a series of books and said, well, I think I have my night shift covered for the next few months. So is is that you read it over a span of a few months, like mostly at work? Yeah, I read all of okay. it at work. Um, in fact, I deliberately did not read it when I was not working. So uh, I almost find that to be as interesting as what, what someone's reading. Like how, how, how do you read or when do you read? Because sometimes like if you, if you have to fit it in, like at certain times of the day, sometimes it can disrupt the flow of a book. Or if you've got sort of a span of time, you can really plow through some books and it's interesting to see uh, sort of what, what sort of setting you're reading it in. Yeah. When, have to carve out time for it or whether you have ample time. Yeah, that was, I mean, all I had was time whenever, whenever I was at work. Um, cause nothing, nothing really happens. So I was just like, you know, eventually I did start bringing like a DS and then three DS and stuff like that. But now that I work a different shift, you know, I can't do that anymore. I have, I have to actually have to work. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, but that's where I first kind of, I jumped into reading there. Um, I also read Hull Zero Three, which I had suggested to you, Matt. I think we both had talked about it. Uh, yeah, my, uh, I read it pretty much pretty soon after we talked about it. Yeah, I, I did too. Um, uh, that was a fast read. Yeah, short book. Short book. Um, interesting. It had some issues, but I liked it. Um, it reminded me of Dead Space, which was the reason why I picked it up to begin with. Um, which I suggest it to people who like sci-fi stuff because it's actually, it's a pretty fun book. Um, but yeah, I had like, that was the last book I read was, was, uh, not ready player one. Um, Hull zero three was the last book that I read and that was seven years ago. So I was slightly reluctant when coming into ready player one. Now, uh, as far as my history, I knew about it. I heard about it, but I had really no desire to read it because I was like, it's a book. I, I don't like reading. I don't, I don't read. Um, but after seeing the trailer for the Steven Spielberg movie, I said, huh, maybe I should give this a shot. And so I, um, knowing that you're a big reader and then a, a lot of our listeners are too. I figured why not? We'll just go ahead and do this because it seems interesting enough. So picked it up and I love this book. It's pretty great. Um, I <laughs> will get into it. I think close to the end of the, of the podcast here, but I do have some issues with it. Yeah, me too, and I'm not sure how what I do like balances with what I don't like. Okay. So, how do you want to start off? You want to start off by like how the book begins, or you want to start off by basically chronologically what happens in the book? Well, I, th I think one of the things that's interesting is maybe just like a setting. Like, what's the world? You know, what's the situation before we get into sort of the 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 plot of it or the the step by step because it's you know it's interesting with sort of the the near future setting you know the world it hasn't been decimated it's not like there was a world war three I don't believe yeah 
but it, you know, everything just kind of fell into, we ran out of natural resources and global warming was an issue. And, you know, everybody sort of couldn't afford to live out in the suburbs because there was no, or out in the rural areas because there just wasn't any jobs. Yeah. And so everybody kind of flocked to the cities and then you got a lot of these sort of urban ghettos. So it's not, it's not quite futuristic like Blade Runner. It's, it's much more closer to our life, I think. Yeah. But jam-packed into cities where nobody's got jobs, nobody's got money. So in some ways it doesn't sound that different than <laughs> any other recession. But, uh, it, but it, it, it sounds more like a depression than a recession. Yeah, certainly. Because there are most certainly people who ha- – who, there are there, – there's a, a big bold line for the have and have-nots. Um, yeah, and then there's, there's the one additional step. It's not even just a depression, though, because it's like the world has is again not to the extent of like the dark tower, but you know we're running out of natural resources, and it's it's not just a oh the economy will bounce back and we'll be fine. It's more like the world has been irreparably damaged. This is the beginning of the end. Yeah. So uh, the the I'm going to keep saying the game. Um, <laughs> the the book takes place in the year 2044, I believe, or 2045. Yep. Um and uh like we said the the world has ran into an energy crisis, ran out of fossil fuels. Um people don't really know what to do. People really don't drive that many cars anymore. They're just kind of piled up. So I mean my first question there with the setting is I feel like if that was the situation more people would go out into the rural areas and they would just try to have like a little farm or something and you would – you'd be able to, I don't know, maybe live off the land or has it gotten to the point where the land isn't even like farmable or sustainable or I, I don't know what the wildlife situation is. And yeah. I don't I don't say this just to be nitpicky but it does come into one of my bigger issues that we'll probably get into later. Okay. But – um. You know, I, I it really didn't describe a lot of that. Um, no, yeah, it it doesn't. At least from what I remember, unless I missed it, you know, they don't really go into that sort of world build, building, which is fine, I guess. But it's, it, I feel like you need a pretty big suspension of disbelief to get into this book to start it. Yeah, it's not like here's the here's what happened and everything makes sense. Now let's tell a story. It's you know, you have to kind of be like, well, these kind of strange things happened, and they're not really explained, but just go with it. So, um, yeah. So, so the world has kind of changed. Um, I, I feel like there's still. I wouldn't say that the middle class has been eliminated, but um, it seems like there's a lot more poverty than there is now, kind of thing. Yeah, and so. Um, in certain places, particularly in the suburban areas of uh, cities, they have created these things called stacks, which are basically mobile homes stacked on top of each other because they yeah. ran out of room. Yeah, say it's a trailer park, but the most efficient use of the land. Yeah. So maybe land is like a hot commodity in this time period, and you can't. You can't really obtain it, so instead we just took your house and stacked it on top of another one. Um, but um, the other big thing that happened 
was that I believe in what twenty twelve I think is when when it's when Oasis first launched, right? Uh, I don't know. It was around this time. Yeah, it sounds about right. I think it was around twenty twelve. Uh, there was a uh, a virtual reality massive. I guess it, you might as well just call it a virtual reality MMO released from a popular video game company. And um, it kind of took off. It revolutionized everything uh, to the point where a few decades down the line, everybody used Oasis, uh, not just for entertainment purposes, but to work, to uh, to do pretty much anything. To go to school, yeah, go to school um, because of the poverty. It's it's so much easier, you know. Nobody has to trek across the city. Yeah. You, you know, you can cut out all those. Tr- There's no gas to have anybody take a bus into school, so you know it's much easier just to jack in. Yeah. So, Oasis originally started off as kind of like a just an MMO. You you create a character, you go to different worlds and you know, level up. I guess take on bosses, stuff like that. Um, but eventually, so less turn- like. Less like Second Life, at least in its original concept. It was more just a game. Yeah, that's what I was going to compare it to. Was it originally turned in? It was originally like World of Warcraft, but eventually turned into like a Second Life kind of thing, where people just went there to just socialize. There's people there who don't go do quests and level up and stuff like that. Yeah, or that PlayStation Home. Is that what it was called? Yeah, PlayStation Home. And they had the hub hub worlds. That that's the thing. It seems most like to me because. That, to me, there was games in there. Like, you could go in and play games, but, you know, it, it was also, like, a weird mall, and you just kind of hang out in the park and talk to people. Yeah, eventually, um, I, I like how they how they put it in the book, is that uh, Oasis eventually turned, like, it was, the, the term Oasis was the same, it was synonymous with the internet. Yeah. Um, that yeah, was, that, when you logged into the internet, you logged into Oasis. And it became like this way bigger thing. Yeah. So, so again, again, it seems to me almost like exactly like the PlayStation Home. Like you, you could watch a trailer on YouTube, or you could log into PlayStation Home and then walk to a virtual movie theater and then watch the trailer. Yeah. That 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 type of situation where they're trying to recreate a world. So I guess one of my main questions about Oasis is. Obviously, these people know they're in, and you know they can they can enter it and they can exit it back into the real world. But when they're in, is it more like the Matrix, where it looks like the real world, or is it more like a? Does it look like a video game? Do you think? You know, I don't know. That that's a good question. I know that uh, it's been said. It said in the book that it was almost photorealistic. Yeah, um, and there were even like ants climbing on the trees, but then they also said like when you set things down, it would just dissolve into nothingness. Or, you know, also like PlayStation Home, when there was a person there, but they weren't really there, you just kind of got their their shadowy silhouette, right? A partial see through silhouette. So it doesn't sound like it looks like real life. It sounds like it. It's just like a real high res game. True. But, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out where on the spectrum it falls of. Lifelike. Hmm. That's a good question, and I honestly don't know. Um. So it's so weird. Um. 
how, how, do, how do I even begin this? So, yeah. So, I mean, you've got the world. I think the next thing is probably the, the game itself, which, you know, we just talked about, but then you've got the creator. I think that's the other key to the, the, the setup of the story. The, the creator of this game slash world is almost a main character in and of himself. Um, though he's probably not still not alive. No, not that I know of. Um, right. So the game was actually created by two people. Um, the first one being James Holiday, who everybody knew as the guy who created Oasis, but he was also, um, had a partner in his business. Um, his name was, um, Ogden. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep. Ogden Morrow. Ogden Morrow. Um, Ogden was more of the businessman, more of the, um, kind of like the, the PR guy. Uh, they were best friends. They grew up together. Um, and, um, you know, throughout their childhood and their teen years, they grew fond of, of uh, video games and uh, role-playing games, stuff like that. And they started off with a small company, kind of like how Bill Gates did uh, in their garage making, you know, simple games from the 80s. And eventually had a bunch of hits to the point where they grew to create this giant online virtual reality world. Um, while James was kind of like a recluse who that's all he was doing was constantly making games. Um, he, he loved, um, pretty much anything. He had a big nostalgia for anything 1980s when he grew up as a teenager. And, um, he liked to incorporate a lot of that stuff into his games. After Oasis became the huge phenomenon that it was, many games that came out came out and said it's playable in Oasis, basically. So World of Warcraft, they even mentioned that in the book. Uh, World of Warcraft, if you want to play World of Warcraft, you first log into Oasis and then go play World of Warcraft. Uh, and it's the same way with every other game out there now, is that in order for you to play a video game, you first have to log into Oasis. Um, so, uh, it starts off with basically, uh, James Halliday dying. It was huge news. Uh, I think it happened in what, 2042 when he died. Um, and, uh, it was all over the news because obviously everybody uses Oasis in the world. Everybody uses it. Um, and the creator has passed away. I think he was in his seventies or something like that. Um, or might've been in his eighties, but, um, the thing that basically changed Oasis and kind of the world was the fact that when he died, he had a last will and testament. Um, yeah, no relatives, no, no children. Yeah. So, he left a video that went to every Oasis user, um, basically uh, telling the world that I, you know, he loves what he does. He loved his work, and he uh, reminisces about how when he was a kid, finding the first Easter egg ever kind of thing. And he says that he put an Easter egg in his game, Oasis. It's been hidden and away. And it's a doozy. Yeah. 
Um, and if anybody, any user has the ability to do this, if they find the Easter egg, they are entitled to his entire fortune, which is... And really any user, because it's free to play the game. Yeah. And it, pretty much everybody is, like, given the VR visor and haptic feedback gloves that you need to in order to interact with everything in this sort of 3D space. So pretty much everybody can do it, rich and poor even. You know, every, everybody has access to this challenge, essentially. Right. So... um they're entitled to his his entire fortune, which is worth like billions, like hundreds of billions of dollars. And so the entire world goes nuts trying to figure out where this Easter egg is. How do you get to it? Uh, he does leave some clues. Um, he has stated that there are three gates that require a key apiece. And in order for you to find the Easter egg, you have to open up all the gates. Uh, but first, you have to locate the keys for them. And so the world goes insane trying to find these keys, these gates, ultimately to win the billions of dollars. And years pass, three years, I think. Or was it five years? I can't remember. I think it's five years. Five years pass. And nobody has found anything. Uh, and it's, it's stagnated to a point where people kind of forgot about it. There's still a lot of people out there who are looking for it. But it has kind of went by the way. So that everybody kind of moved on with their life. Yeah, you kind of whittled it down so that the people who are really into it are still really into it. But it's not sort of the global everyday headline phenomenon that it was. Right. So, um. Most people kind of think it's a myth at that point. Yeah. Uh, so there are people out there who are Easter egg hunters, which they have eventually turned them into gunters. Gunters. The gunters <laughs> are looking for the Easter egg. They, they collaborate with each other. There's multiple guilds. Um, and then on top of that, there is a rival software company. Um, IOI. What, what does it stand for again? I can't remember. Uh, innovative online something. Something. IOI is what you need to know. This uh, rival company uh, has uh, hired a bunch of lawyers who figure out that they can. There's a loophole in the clause that allows them that if they win the the money or they find the Easter egg, that they can then take over Oasis and use it for monetary gain. Basically, every time you log in, you're going to be plastered with ads. And every yep. time, and if you even want to log in, oh, guess what? you got to pay a fee. Uh, stuff like that. And they're basically, <laughs> I, I'm trying to compare them to, oh, it's like Electronic Arts and their bullshit with like the online pass and shit like that. Yeah, um, they also get compared to uh, like internet service providers. Because yeah. they want to regulate it. So um, those are essentially the bad guys here. Um, because everybody loves that the fact that Oasis is free. Anybody can enjoy it and, and use it. And uh, they don't. that's the last thing they want is IOI to take it over. Uh, but IOI has uh, recruited tons of people for their company that all they do is go around trying to find the Easter egg. 
that basically signed away their ability to, you know, claim all that money if they do find it. They're just part of the corporation now. Yeah, and they get paid to do that. And it, to me, because, like, they, they make a point that all of these people, like, have the exact same avatar. So to me, it, like, keeps bringing up the Matrix. So I'm thinking Agent Smiths and, like, hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. Uh, they call them uh, Sixers because um, their usernames all just are a bunch of numbers, but they all start with six. So, um, but that's that's kind of the world as it is right now. Um, but cut to our main character who is a, I guess, 17 year old high school senior. Uh, maybe 17 at the start, but I'm pretty sure he's 18 when he, when he finds the key. Okay. Um, we cut to, um, Wade Watts, who is a high school senior who obviously grew up using Oasis. Um, he lives in the stacks of Oklahoma City. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, in the outskirts of Oklahoma City. And um, he's uh, lived there pretty much all his life. Um, he lives with his aunt because, well, he's had a pretty rough childhood. Um, his mother and father were both, I think, teenagers when they had him. Um and his dad was killed uh, during some kind of drug thing, I think. Yeah, I think they mentioned it. Definitely both his parents are dead. And then his mom was an Oasis prostitute? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she died. I can't. Did they mention how she died? I can't remember. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, needless to say, he lives with his aunt now. Um, and she treats him like shit. Uh, she, uh, you know, if, if he has anything, she takes it from him and then sells it. Um, cause she's also, I think a drug addict, right? Yeah. She's, she's it's apparently good. a meth head too. Uh, yeah. she's constantly going through boyfriends who beat the shit out of him and, um, it's just a really bad home life. On top of that, there's a bunch of people that live in their one stack tower, like multiple families. Yeah, like, like 15 or 17 people live in like one trailer. Yeah. Um, and so he kind of fucking hates his situation. Um, but, uh, Wade, ever since he heard of, uh, James's passing, Halliday's passing. Um, he has been obsessed with wanting to become a gunter. Uh, and he has studied practically everything about Halliday's life. Uh, on top of what he was into, what he, what kind of music he listened to, what was his favorite TV shows, everything in hopes that he would figure out what he did, where he put, the Easter egg. Um, to the point where, like, it's obsessive. And on top of that, a lot of people have done this. Most Gunters know a lot about Holiday. Um, yeah, because of his journal or whatever they call it. Yeah, he, he left, like, a 
a, a giant journal of just like random thoughts that he wrote down. Uh, and it was kind of like a manifesto almost um, of his like, ideals and just pretty much everything. Uh, he studied that. He's you know, figured out what his favorite music was, listened to all the albums, uh, figured out his favorite TV shows, watched all the episodes multiple times, movies, uh, video games, everything. Um, so there's, there's really the crux for the whole book of the book being a vehicle for nostalgia for the 80s. And that's really it's because of Halliday's goal and the fact that everybody says, all right, we need to know everything about his life so that we can understand him to win you know, to get the clues in order to win the prize. So that's really the, the the main and only justification for all of the 80s references in the book. Right. And it's really weird because they talk about how, like, they talk about how the 80s actual, actually came back. Like, it started off just with people who were looking for the Easter egg, but then it turned, like, the fashion turned back into the 80s, and everybody was listening to covers of 80s songs. Yeah, because that was the big hot thing. Was everybody's like, dude, we got to, we're learning all about this 80s stuff, so let's get back into it. Um, it was like, how do I fucking talk about this? I mean, should I just start with the, the story beats now? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the main, the main setup. So there's the challenges. You know, you've got this kid, he's basically like Harry Potter, he's like alone. Um, you know, he's living with a family that doesn't want him, and now he's about to set off on his quest. Right. So, um, he doesn't like logging on at uh, at his house or at his stack. So, he leaves the stack every day to go to school. Um, and what he he has basically a hideout, which is a big pile of cars on top of each other. And uh, there's a giant van in between them that he can kind of sit in the back of. He's like, he's got like a lawn chair and he logs in there. Um, It's established pretty early on that this kid's pretty smart. Like he knows how to tinker with stuff. He knows how to fix things like computer stuff. Uh, he knows a lot about electronics. Um, and that's within like the first few chapters of the book is is him talking about how oh yeah I fixed this and and was able to get internet on it and stuff yeah and like it's got that. multiple laptops stashed around and yeah never I think you know they do go into sort of his previous childhood he didn't really get along with people so he was a bit of a loner as well as well I guess I guess a lot more people in this world are probably loners but it seems like he would be regardless of the situation in the world right. And I should mention that this entire book is is narrated by him. Um, in fact, it's almost like he's probably like in his 30s or 40s at this point, and he's retelling what happened. Um, at least by the way he talks, it is. Um, so uh, he goes to school. I should mention that he does have a neighbor that he likes. Um, it's a, uh, elderly woman who grew up, uh, in the eighties and nineties. Um, she's a, kind of just a sweet old lady who lived yeah, in the Sacks. Yeah. Uh, he did talk to her while on his way to school, but eventually he made it to school, which, um, 
I should say just a little bit more world building. Apparently, like, you know, the stacks is kind of a dangerous place to be. Um, he mentions that, you know, you got to be careful not to be seen. And if you are seen, just get the hell out of there because, you know, there's a ton of like meth heads and, uh, people just rob you for your, your food, food stamps or food credits or whatever they're called. Vouchers. Vouchers. Food vouchers. Thank you. Um, so, uh, he makes it to his hideout and then logs in to go to school. Uh, and he talks about how he went to a regular school in, in real life. Um, for up until sixth grade, I think. Yeah, something like that. And he hated it because he was such a loner. Everybody made fun of him and he couldn't talk to anybody, especially girls. And he, he absolutely hated it. But, um, due to overpopulation, uh, they offered online schools through Oasis and he signed up for that as long as he kept his grades up. So, uh, and that's where he's been going to school for the past, what, three years, something like that. Yeah. Um, and so he logs into school and, uh, uh, it, every school on Oasis is on the exact same world. Um, and so that's where you start realizing like he, this is like, how many chapters in is this? Probably like five chapters in where he starts talking about him logging in and then we get, basically the exposition of this is how this world works. So Oasis is divided into multiple worlds. So there's a world that's all about Dungeons and Dragons and there's a world all about Star Wars and there's a world all about this, but there's also worlds that's like, Oh, this is the shopping world and this is the, the school world and stuff like that. So, um, on the world where the schools are, all the schools are identical Everything looks the exact same, but they're kind of separated by certain links, areas, and stuff like that. Um, and typical day at school, he logs in, he goes to class. Uh, before class, he does um, go into a chat room, which is described as entering a whole new world, kind of. Yeah, it seems like it's almost like an instance where... You know, they, they, they do spend a fair amount of time talking about, you're right, sort of the rules of the world and like, you know, when you're, when you're in Oasis, but then you're, you're doing something else, like your character in Oasis will, you know, have their face down and, you know, they'll be in basically a, you know, not a AFK mode essentially. Uh, and so a lot of the time he's just, his avatar is just sitting in the classroom, but he may be out in chat rooms or, like the ones that this this guy H has, which is sort of a more advanced one where they actually do interact and it's like a, like a basement lounge. It's a lot like your home in PlayStation Home. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he gets invited to a chat room uh, to one of his friends, one of his, what he claims is his only friend, uh, H, which is spelled funny as A-E-C-H. Um, for, at first I thought it was Eck. Or something like that, because I was like, I don't know how you read this. Um, but then he explains that H is, because obviously H was taken, uh, and that he, he explains like how everybody names their stuff with like leet speak and shit, because a lot of the old names have been taken. Cause like his, his online name is, um, is Percival, but Percival was taken, so he had to name it Parzival. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's P A R Z I V A L. Um, and so yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say in the audio book, they pronounce it essentially as close to Percival as you can, just uh-huh. with the Z. So it's Percival. Percival. Um, so, uh, um, but yeah, um, he, he, that H is really his only friend. He doesn't know who he is in real life. Um, he said, he said the only clue he has is that his real first name begins with an H. Uh, but he's good friends with him. Talks a lot about, you know, Gunters and they share the same kind of eighties video game movie trivia and they know all about holiday. They're basically, you know, two peas in a pod. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's described H as basically his equal. As far yeah. as as far as inter- information that he knows about Holiday, as well as how good he is at video games, stuff like that. Yeah, they're essentially elite, and H only invites over the people who are the best gunters in, into his chat room. Yeah, and so uh, they, you know, that this is where they set up H, um, and it's basically just a lot of friendly banter between them. Another gunter shows up who is also a high school student uh, named. I rock. Is that how you, is that how they call them in the book? Yep. Okay. So I rock kind of like, uh, what was that? A Camaro? I rock. Yeah. 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 Rock. Mm-hmm. So you had the I rock shows up. He is kind of like a, he comes off as like a rich snobby kid. Um, who he thinks he knows everything. Uh, and he, I think he kind of, paid his way into getting higher level and stuff like that. He, he has a bunch of connections and friends and stuff and he's a smarmy asshole. Um, uh, Wade can't stand him. Uh, H tolerates him, tolerates him. He says he invites him into his chat room because it's fun to make fun of him. Yeah. And he also says it's, it's almost like keeping tabs on where everybody else is. He's like, if that's if that's what the other Gunters are like, we're in pretty good shape, right? As far as being capable of actually finding, you know, being like the one person in the world that can find the Easter egg. Mm-hmm. So um, they have a little bit of an exchange there. Iraq gets embarrassed and leaves. Yeah, um, a little bit of an exchange. I had to point this out because this is one of the things that really annoyed me. I think Wade is a dickhead. He is a dick. He is, yeah. Wade, he, Wade is your typical teenager who plays Call of Duty and is annoying and uses very foul language. Um, he's very alpha, like he's putting like. I mean, I, I felt bad for Iraq at the end of that. I know he's kind of a smarmy asshole, but you know, Wade kind of goes way out of his way to make sure everybody knows how much smarter he is than Iraq. How much more he knows, he really calls him out, and he's just kind of a douche. Here's my thing about Wade, because that this is what I started imagining whenever I was reading this book. Because I'm not having somebody read it, like I like. So I should mention I'm reading the paperback while Matt is actually listening to the audio book, which is written or read by Will Wheaton. Um, and I don't know if it conveys differently. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I mean, you're going to get a little bit of, you know, Wheaton's impression of how the characters are speaking. Right. Because you know, he, he does do 
you know, some like voices and he's going to put emphasis on different words. So it, it probably does shift it a little bit. But I, as the book progresses, I feel like Wade is kind of your typical teenager, uh, particularly an online teenager. So, uh, a shy kid who won't say jack shit to you in, in your face, but when he's online, he thinks he's hot shit and um, talks trash to you the entire time while you're playing Overwatch. And at the same time, he is kind of skilled, so you just wish he'd kind of be humble. Yeah, and if they're setting that up as sort of his character, one of his character flaws or his main character flaw, okay. But if, but so far in the book, there hasn't really been any mention whatsoever of, hey, you know, you didn't, you know, didn't really need to be such a dick there. Yeah. Pretty much, so far there hasn't been any of the author sort of saying, uh, you know, that that wasn't the way he should have handled it, but you know, that's the way he did because of his upbringing or whatever. So it, it seems a little weird to me because I don't find him to be a relatable character, which is strange to me because, you know, I, I think his, his life situation up until the point that the book starts is a little bit like Harry Potter. You know, he's sort of, sort of secluded. You know, he's kind of a savant. But well, the thing that I related him more to when I first started reading the book um, – is Ender from Ender's Game. And because he's kind of an outcast, he's kind of a little guy, he doesn't really fit in. But to me, Ender was much more relatable than Wade. I find Wade just to be kind of a dickhead. I wouldn't even want to be friends with Wade. And which is weird for me because I feel like this is the kind of book where, you know, this is the kind of thing I would have liked to immerse in. I would love to be friends with all these people, except now I have a main character that I don't even like. So I find that part to be very strange to me because I thought he would be more like, uh, more like Ender. Hmm. Well, you know, I see it. I see it slightly different. I think Wade is a dick when he's online, but he's constantly talking about himself in certain ways. So. Uh, a little bit later on, he's mentioning like, oh, I'm just like a level two idiot and I can't do anything. He realizes that he knows it and he, he, he assesses the situation that certain way. So he kind of puts on this tough facade, but he knows he doesn't have the power to do it. Um, but he tries to think his way out. Um, and he's just so happens to be smart enough to be able to think his way out of a lot of situations. Um, I think he realizes, I think he knows that he's, he's not that great, but he's never going to let anybody see that. Yes. I, I, I don't know how he feels about himself in the real world. I know he's got his limitations in game because he doesn't have any money. So he can't, like, the game is free to play, but you do have to pay to transport all over the place. And, you know, all the, all the Gunters want to go all over all these worlds searching for Easter egg clues. And he can't do a lot of that because he doesn't have money. But I still get the sense that he's real arrogant and that if he had the money, he thinks he would be the best person around. Right. Well, I don't know. I guess I haven't finished the book, but. Yeah. 
that, me either. I, I just I find it strange as the setup. So maybe this will all flip by the end of the book, and you know, maybe. I mean, I, I don't get the sense that's where it's going, but maybe that'll happen. Maybe he will have a coming of age story. Um, but yeah, so uh, he goes to class. Um, uh, he during his lunch break, I think he it mentions that he is a big fan of a blogger uh, named Artemis. Uh, and Artemis, uh, another lead speak as A R T three M I S. Uh, and, um, she is a gunter who constantly, uh, posts blogs about, you know, everyday life and what's going on with, uh, Easter egg hunting, stuff like that. He finds her funny, witty, and, uh, attractive as far as, inside the game goes, which he does mention on multiple occasions that this may very well be a 40 year old fat man named Chuck named Chuck. <laughs> so, uh, he holds his reserves about it, but he is a very big fan of hers, much like how he is with holiday. He is a little bit obsessive. Yeah. And she's gotten famous. So it's not just like a, a rando. Like she apparently has gotten pretty famous in the, the blogging scene. Yeah. So she's kind of like a YouTuber. In that sense. Um, so in which YouTube, it still exists in this world because they mention it multiple times. Um, a lot of stuff, like pretty much, it seems like aside from Oasis existing right now, everything else exists that has happened so far in real life in this world. Um, it just so happens that in this world, in 2012, a virtual reality game called Oasis came out. So uh, a lot of stuff you'll recognize, even like slight modern day stuff. Um, so, but yeah, uh, he mentions Artemis. Yeah, even, Go ahead. Just, just to that point, they even mentioned the whole, you know, they're talking about the Holy Trinities and they're talking about the Indiana Jones and they're saying like, oh, we don't count anything, including the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and anything after that. You know, that's not that's not on the study guide because it everybody considered it to be so bad. So it was even... Sort of not just 80s stuff. Yeah. So, um, after that, um, God, when the hell does he get his revelation? It's, it's during, it, it may be after school. No, it's not after school. It's just before, it's during his lunch break, I think, is when he, he's constantly studying, uh, the, the, the video of Holiday explaining, you know, how the Easter egg is, it has came to be and you know, the, the contest basically. Yeah. So he's in Latin class when he gets his breakthrough. Right. Because there's a, there's a line. Um, and I can't, I don't know the fucking, the clue. I don't have it in front of me, but, um, there is a, a clue. Shit. See, I have to have this stuff. I need to take notes or something. Oh, boy. I'm going through my book currently. And I can't fucking find it. I will never find this shit. Shit, yeah. Here we go. Uh, three keys hidden open three... Three hidden keys open three secret gates, wherein the errant will be tested for worthy traits. And those with the skill to survive these straits will reach the end where the prize awaits. The copper key awaits explorers in a tomb filled with horrors, 
but you have much to learn if you hope to earn a place among the high scorers. So one other thing I forgot to mention is that there is a, a website, his uh, Halliday's personal website, um, where the front page is basically a giant scoreboard that says whoever finds keys and gates and stuff like that gets points, and everybody knows who's in the lead as far as getting the Easter egg. Um, so he has a breakthrough uh, with that riddle. Um, he realizes that the world that he is on is actually Latin for learn school, but it's also synopsis with learning. Ludus. Yeah. Luden. So, um, he, it kind of breaks into his mind. He realizes that the copper key could very well be on this planet that he's on. And since he can't travel anywhere cause he's broke, he can't teleport to any other world. So he can't really explore yet. Um, but he knows that, Hey, I can go explore this world because this is the only planet I can actually be on. Um, so he then realizes that, you know, it was a tomb of horrors. There is an old dungeons and dragons module for advanced dungeons and dragons called the tomb of horrors. Um, and he's known this for, for years. He studied the module itself and it says that the, uh, the tomb itself is, uh, inside of a hill that is marked with rocks that look in the shape of a skull. So he then compares and contrasts the map from the D and D module to a possible location on the planet that he is on. And sure enough, there is a hill that looks like it may have a skull on it. Everybody's been running around all of Oasis, not realizing that it may very well be on a planet that has nothing to do with Oasis. It's a place where everybody goes to school. So he then is able, through certain loopholes, he can go to a football game or a basketball game. I think it was a basketball game. Uh, to at another school uh, and he can get a free transport. So he transports to another school that's close to the location. And I think he said he had to run an hour. Yeah. I think it was one hour instead of like, I don't know, five days or something of running. Yeah. So he runs for an hour the whole time he's studying the module uh, and learning where the traps are, where the enemies are, stuff like that. And when he makes it there, sure enough, there is a tomb of horrors, and it is completely 3D mapped out to be just like the Dungeons and Dragons module from like 1976. Um, and this is when I started really getting into it because I was like, okay, I like I play Dungeons and Dragons, I know a lot about this stuff, and they're using tons of lingo and terms and stuff like that that are straight from Dungeons and Dragons. So, yep. and also, also the story has that structure now of there are going to be riddles to solve. Right. To me that, you know, it was like, Ooh, all right, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be, you know, I mean, kind of like Indiana Jones, like how awesome is that when you're trying to decipher where things are and you're trying to figure out what, what the meaning is. And, you know, I, so far that's been my favorite part of the book. And this is where, this is where it really gets into it is cause he's just, 
he's just unlocked that first clue. And now he needs to see if it's if he was right and if he's going to actually get sort of the, the prize that he thinks he's going to get. Right. So uh, since he has memorized uh, the module itself, he knows where all the traps are, knows where all the enemies are, um, and he's able to not only avoid most of that stuff, he's also be able to equip his character with some better armor. Um, he's only level 2 at the moment. Where, you know, most characters are like in their 30s, 40s, 50s, stuff like that. Um, but he got some better armor, stuff like that. And he eventually makes it to the end of this dungeon, which is the throne room. Where the Lich King stays. Um, and he realizes, if I have to fight this fucking Lich King, there's no way in hell I can do it. But... As far as, and that was the thing I kept asking myself was, I'm thinking in video game terms. So what happens when you die? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Do you respawn? Yeah. Do you, like, you know, that's like, I'm always looking at it in that, those kind of senses. But uh, in my mind, it was Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's basically when you die, you lose all of your equipment. You start back at level one and you have to grind again. Uh, you basically lose that character. Yeah, it's a pretty harsh penalty in, in Oasis. You lose everything. Uh, so he makes it to the Lich King, and normally in the Lich King you have a boss fight. But it's a little different here. Uh, the Lich King asks... Yeah, the Lich King's not even supposed to be here. Yeah. Because he, he's supposed to be like farther down, so once he gets to this throne room... And a Sererak is on the throne there. That's the first time that it's changed from the uh, from the Dungeons and Dragons campaign, right? So, um, the Lich King actually talks to him and asks, uh, "What is it that he seeks?" And he's like, "He's I'm looking for the copper key." Uh, and the whole time he's going through his mind of like, what am I going to say to this guy to make sure he doesn't fight me? And he's like, well, in order for you to get the copy, you had to defeat me. And he's like, oh, God. But then all of a sudden, two, an arcade cabinet materializes in front of him. And it's a arcade game of Joust. A, a 1980s arcade game. Uh, and... He has to play the Lich King in Joust, the best uh, out of three rounds, basically. Yeah, um, so, kind of weirdly like a dream. Like the first thing I thought of was that this felt like a dream. Yeah, like you're in a dungeon that shouldn't be on this planet. You know, then all of a sudden there's a demon there, and instead of fighting you, he challenges you not even to to a, play a game, but to play a game in an arcade cabinet. And then he like materializes quarters and gives them to you or puts them in. Yeah. So <laughs> it was kind of a funny image, which I thought it was funny that they highlight that in the book that he says it finally struck him how absurd the situation was. <laughs> you got a guy in plate armor standing next to a giant like Lich King next to a joust cabinet in a dungeon. <laughs> yeah, slamming their fingers on the buttons. <laughs> so, um, but luckily, um, even though, uh, Wade is slightly rusty at Joust. Um, him and H have played it tons of times. He got so good that he was able to beat H uh, 
pretty much every time they played. Um, he lost the first round. The second round, he won, and then he beat the by by just a a hair. He beat the Lich King on the third round and won. Um, to which the Lich King congratulates him and gives him the copper key. Um, and along with the copper key, uh, he tells him about the gate, which I am now sifting through my book to try and figure out. Yeah, they, they just call it the copper gate, but there is the other quote there. Right. There's the, it's a clue that, that kind of key, two lines of text on the key, I believe. Right. Um, you know, and it has the other, it has the secondary effect of he's now the first person in all of Oasis who's obtained that copper key. So he immediately is the only name on the leaderboard that everybody can see and everybody follows because, you know, people want to know if somebody's making progress on the, the treasure egg quest. Right. So right. here we go. So, yeah. I found it. Uh, what you seek lies hidden in the trash on the deepest level of Daggeroth. Um, and he kind of gets this one right away. He knows exactly what he's talking about. Uh, so, uh, trash is, uh, kind of a, uh, a nickname for a, uh, a computer, uh, from the seventies uh, and eighties. Um, uh, the TRS-80, called the Trash-80. It says, what you seek lies in the trash, So, which was obviously Halliday's first computer. Um, he said every gunter knew that this was Holiday's first computer. So, And also, there's a, there's a full simulation of his childhood house. Right. That everybody's been to and studied. So he did, he has a planet... Uh, let's see here. I can just read it. The planet was it was the site of a meticulous recreation of his hometown from the late '80s in Middletown, Ohio. Uh, so he has a planet that is devoted to just being a recreation of his hometown. Uh, there are multiple hometowns on this planet, uh, and uh, obviously, if you go to his house, there is that computer sitting there, along with a copy of uh, a Daggeroth which is a adventure game that he enjoyed as a kid, which then eventually inspired him to create his first video game. Which actually I think Wade hasn't been to the virtual recreation. I think he says he just recognized it from the video, the he re invitation. Yeah, he recognized it from the invitation video as well as multiple screenshots that people have taken. Uh, he studied all that stuff. So he knows a lot about what the house even looks like. So he realizes he knows what he has to do. He has to go to that planet and then, um, play that adventure game to the point where you get to the lower level of the game and hopefully open the first gate, the copper gate. Uh, so, uh, in his quest, uh, after beating the, the Lich King, and obtaining multiple uh, levels of experience. He's now level 10. On top of that, he's got enough uh, in-game currency that he can pretty much travel wherever he wants to currently. So now he's pretty much set. He realizes that he can now open this gate. 
and he is ecstatic. So he travels back through the dungeon and makes it to the exit and is stopped by a shadowy figure. Uh, and that's where the chapter kind of breaks and then it goes to the next chapter. So kind of like a, uh, kind of like a cliffhanger. And the person standing there is Artemis, his, his online crush, this YouTube sensation, if you will. Um, and she is saying, what the hell are you doing here? He's like, oh shit. How does she know about this place? Uh, this is kind of an out. She had actually figured out this place for a while. Yeah, five weeks before. Five weeks before. Now, originally she said it was only three weeks, but that's beside the point. Um, she's a liar. Yeah. And she's high level. She's like level 50 something. But here's the thing is that if you go up against the Lich King and you lose, he kills your character. Which means. Yeah, I think, that, well, I think they said if you lose at Joust, you have to fight him. Right. In that chamber, right? Right. And so she apparently hasn't actually lost to him or she would have lost her character. I thought but she I think she said I thought it came back as she has lost her character multiple times and grinded to get her character to level fifty. Uh right. see I thought she just barely beat him every time, but never lost to him. But she that's why she was so shocked when she finds out that Wade was unhurt or survived it because you know, her being so many levels up and she just barely beat him, you know, then how could Wade have survived when he was so low level? Exactly. Okay, so there you go. So she was like, yeah, you have to be like at least level 30 to beat that guy. Um, and she's like decked out in like kind of like cyberpunk kind of outfit with like lasers and shit. Um, and she's like, so you lost to him? And he's like, yeah, I lost. Uh, and she's like, well, that means you had to fight him, right? So you're probably pretty badly injured. So she heals him not knowing that he has not been damaged at all. And she says, well, she's been coming back every single day because it, the, the dungeon basically resets every day uh, for the past three weeks, which kind of has actually been five weeks. So she's known about this place for five weeks, and she hasn't been able to beat him at Joust. So he he tells her lies to her and says, I couldn't beat him at Joust, but um, I was able to get away. You know, I beat him straight up. Um. And she's like, well, you can stick around and we can maybe double team him. And it's like, I don't know if that works. And also at the same time, he was worried that if this was a PVP area, um, she could easily just kill him and then he would lose everything. Yeah. And she would steal it. I don't think, I think he mentioned that you couldn't steal stuff off other characters if you killed them. Oh, okay. I think you just Even lose everything. Even in PvP areas. I think even in PvP areas. But luckily, since this area is a school zone technically, it's not a PvP area, so they can't fight each other. Um, so she originally believes him, but then uh, she checks the leaderboards, the scoreboard, and notices, oh look, Percival is the top of the leaderboard, which means he did beat him at Joust. He's the first one. Yeah, somehow he's got 10,000 points, so it must have been from this. Yeah. Because these are the only two people who know about this. So uh, she then blocks the exit with a magic spell so he can't leave. Uh, 
So that way he can't have that big of a head start against her. So um, after the spell dissipates, he then leaves. And while he's on his run back to a uh, teleportation station, uh, he checks the scoreboard. And sure enough, she shows up on the scoreboard slightly below him. So she obviously beat him at Joust finally. Yeah, and he gave her a little hint. Yeah. Uh, play on the left side instead of the right side. So uh, he makes it to a teleportation station, goes to the uh, Middletown, Ohio planet, and goes into a recreation of uh, 1980s Middletown and sits down at one of the... Uh, one of his uh, Halliday's homes recreated and plays through uh, Daggeroth, which uh, he's played before. He's kind of, uh, I, I, I don't think he was a master of it, but he says he does remember it, so he knows how to play it. Um, and he's able to beat it, gets to the final level, and uh, a door opens up uh, on the side of the wall next to the computer. Uh, it's the exact same uh, location where there was a uh, movie poster for the movie War Games. And when he steps in it, he is then teleported to another world. A world where none of his stuff works. So like he can't bring up menus or anything like that. It's almost like he's outside of the game. And he is teleported and sitting there playing a game of Galaga. And he can hear 80s music playing, and he, he looks around, he's in an arcade somewhere. But then he realizes when he looks up through the uh, the monitor of the arcade cabinet, he notices his face isn't his character's face anymore. It's the face of Matthew Broderick. He realizes that he is now inside the movie War Games. And he realizes the beginning of the movie. And there is a part where this kid comes in and says a line to him. And he doesn't respond. And so he gets a message on his screen saying, that's, you know, you have to respond with the correct line. He's seen war games like 15 times. He has the movie memorized. Yeah, because uh, Halliday mentioned that it's one of his favorites and that, Anorak's Almanac. Yeah. So uh, he he then uh, proceeds to play out the entirety of War Games, the entire movie, as Matthew Broderick. Um, and they, they, they really go into this more than I thought they were going to as well. I did too. Talking about it was almost like uh, like Rock Band or something. If you hit the pitch right and the inflections right, you get bonus points. Yeah, and he, he even goes off to say that after multiple people had done this, that a game company actually patented it and said that, you, oh, you can play your favorite movies in this style kind of thing. Yeah, and it became a whole new genre of video games. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, he goes through the entirety of War Games. And at the end, uh, after he finishes it, uh, when the credits are supposed to roll, he gets transported back to his, uh, his I guess, the, the Middletown, Ohio planet. And says, congratulations, you have now opened the Copper Gate. And um, that's 
he gets more points. Uh, what he doesn't realize is, is that after that, he then he has to sleep because he has been logged in for I think he said like fifteen hours. Yeah, hadn't slept for like twenty four hours, so he's exhausted in the real world. So he logs out and falls asleep inside the van of his uh, this, his hideout. And when he wakes up, he uh, checks his um, oasis. He's got multiple messages. Tons of people wanting to get in contact with him. There's news outlets talking about who the hell's this Percival guy. Um, there's also this uh, other person named Artemis, who's kind of like this big YouTuber, who's also right behind him. On top of that, there are other, there's multiple other people who have now hit the scoreboard. H being one of them. Uh, he deduced that since Percival can only go on the, on the world that, because he's, he didn't have any money to tra- teleport anywhere, it has to be on the school world. So he figured that out. Beat him at joust because he's just as good at joust. So he's number three on the leaderboard. And then there are two other people, um, which, God, what are their names? Daito and Shoto. Daito and Shoto. Uh, which, at the current moment, I don't know who they are, but, uh, I think, uh, Wade suspects that they're part of a, uh, a Gunter guild that figured it out. So, um, did he get another clue after finishing the Copper Gate? I can't remember. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember where he got the second clue from. Let me let me take a look here. I'm going to go back. Here we go. Uh, the captain conceals the jade key in a dwelling long negated, but you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are all collected. And he has no idea what that means. So, um, the, but he's pretty much become an internet celebrity. Everybody's wanting to contact him. Everybody's wanting to, to talk to him, get interviews. People are wanting to do sponsorships. Uh, and, and they want to do this all with his avatar. He doesn't, he doesn't want to actually have anybody know who he really is. Well, yeah, that's, that's one of the things I was going to bring up was that, um, Holiday's original partner, uh, Ogden Morrow uh, is still alive and a news outlet did an interview with him and he watched the interview and the interview they asked us they said what would you what would you suggest to these people who have made it to the scoreboard and Ogden said pretty much like to the camera like he was talking to the players stay anonymous yeah don't ever reveal who you really are because if you do all you're asking for is trouble and for the most part Wade has decided yeah I might as well just not tell anybody who I am so um, but he does talk to a few people I think he does talk to H um, I think after the fact I can't I can't necessarily remember Um but he's looking at all his emails and one of the, one of the emails is from multiple sponsorships, which he decides, Hey, you know what? I could probably use some of that money from the sponsorships 
So he decides to go for it. He uh, he allows them to use his avatars, you know, likeness as well as the name, and he even does like a little voiceover in like a you know disrupted voice, so they can't figure out what his voice sounds like. And he sends that over there to them. But the big yeah, like when Shepard endorsing the Citadel products. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every goddamn store on the Citadel is my favorite store. They also, at this point, they do a little bit of an interesting backstory on Ogden Morrow. I don't know if it was right around here. It um, was. But it was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, where they go into sort of his background and you know how he grew to have a falling out with Holiday. Yeah. Hadn't talked to him in like 10 years. Yeah, hadn't talked to him in 10 years, and then he went to make like educational games with his wife, but then she died. Yeah. And now he's just kind of, I guess, a recluse as well. I mean, he's not part of whatever gregarious gaming systems or whatever the company's name is now. Yeah. But um, there's there's one other big thing that he he notices is that He's getting a ton of emails from IOI. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with them. But he reads the email just so they'll stop sending it. And they say, hey, congratulations. Uh, we would love to talk with you. We have a great offer for you if you would like to join our team. And he decides... I'm not going to go with these guys, but it would be fun just to go there and tell them to fuck off. Uh, so he decides to set up an interview with IOI and go meet with them for a potential, you know, investment opportunity to join their team. And that's where chapter 13 ends. Uh, kind of on a slight cliffhanger where he's getting ready to go to the interview. And that's where I stopped. Um, yeah, I, I read a little past there, but I'll, I'll save it. Okay. I was going to say 14 would have been a great place to stop because there's an, another big event that happens pretty quick, but it'll be also a good place to start the next one. Yeah. So, um, so Matt, I know you said in the email, and I know you've hinted at it a little bit here so far, you have some words about this book. What other concerns do you have about this book? Well, so I've got I've got some issues. I mean, the first one being I think he's just a dickhead. Okay. Um, and we didn't quite get to it, but in this meeting that he has with the guy from IOI, he's also like, I just I don't understand why he would be such a dickhead. Um, but that you know, I find the way that he like shamed IROC to be weird. I think he's so full of himself. So I don't, it's weird to me not liking the main character when it's essentially the prototypical character that I think I should be able to identify with. Oh, uh, there's one other thing I forgot to mention. IROC is also on the scoreboard. Um, because he knows who Artemis is or he, he knows he goes to his school. He also knows that he doesn't have any money. Kind of like how H figured it out. Uh, also, IOI has been, or not IOI, um, uh, IROC has also been going to the press and talking about it, 
and basically he's told everybody, hey, he's a student here, um, and he's probably pretty much let the cat out of the bag. It's no longer a secret where the the first key is. So eventually there will be a lot of people showing up for it. But anyway, go ahead and continue, Matt. One of my other things leads back to what I started sort of this episode off with, and that's sort of the world building. It doesn't – I feel like I need a little bit more rationale for why people are in Oasis. Like I know the world is kind of shitty, but – Sort of to what I think Ogden Morrow's concerns were when he left, like that. How is this a solution? You know, if if all these people were doing something to fix the world, maybe it wouldn't be so shitty. Yeah, the, the fact that everybody's just jacked in like a drone, I'm, you know, certainly not going to help the situation. And it, and it comes to me to be a little bit more like, you know, Wally. Where everything has gotten so easy, nobody has to do anything anymore. Everybody's just kind of, you know, a disgusting sloth. Right. It's just jacked in 24-7. So, I mean, that, that it's not really a negative on the book per se, but in its own right. But the fact that I don't feel like there's been any rationale for how people got there it is what I would consider a bit of a problem with the book. Okay. You know, the, the fact that they're at that point now is not a negative. That's just where they are. But it... It, it seems illogical to me that they would have gotten to this point. Like, why did people even really start doing this? I know, you know, something like the school I thought was a really good example. Like, we didn't have the gas to bus kids into school, so we just set up this virtual school. Like, that that's one really good point. But I, I didn't feel like there was quite enough to sort of justify this whole thing being set up. Uh, I, you know, and I, I really like a lot of the 80s references, but I think it goes a little bit overboard. To the point where sometimes I feel like they're manipulating things just so they can get to a point where Wade can list off like seven related things from the 80s. Right. Or they'll say, you know, instead of saying, oh, you know, from Joust, they'll be like, from Joust, made by X, Y, and Z, came out in the year, you know, 1981, was originally called this, and, uh, you know, here's a here's another factoid about it. Here's – all right, so I have an answer to that. Yeah, I do too. Wade's a dickhead. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, the stuff that's like in parentheses and there's some stuff that have an asterisk and then at the bottom you can read what, what they're describing. I think Ernest Klein started off making this book for people like me and you who know about this stuff. Publishers realized he had a good idea and they mm-hmm. said this is a great story, but we got to sell this to multiple people, not just video game players. You need to elaborate on what MMO stands for. Because there may be people out here reading this book who don't know what the fuck MMO means. So I, I get the feeling, I could be completely wrong here, but I get the feeling that he used the lingo that we all know. He said, oh, it's an arcade game from Joust. But there was an outside source making him explain it further for people who don't know about this kind of thing. I think that may have been what happened because it feels, because it does feel forced. Yeah. It feels a bit listy. It it does. It feels, it feels a little bit listy. And 
I feel like that that feels like an outside source to me. It doesn't feel like Klein wanted to actually do that. I feel like he wrote this book and then people said, okay, you need to explain this, this, and this. Otherwise, people will be lost. Um, and I noticed that myself. I was like, it feels like he's explaining things too much. I know what an MMO is, but granted, if I sat down with my dad and had him read this book, he may find it interesting, but he doesn't know what the fucking MMO is. So he yeah, has, he's not so, context. so we need to have this explained to people. And I think that's a, I think that's pretty much just a, a clear cut. That's what the publisher said. You need to do this in order for us to sell this book to mass people. Um, I have an issue with a little bit of the structure. So much like how in this, on this podcast, we talk about game mechanics and stuff like that. There's a mechanic in this book, I feel like, where he will take, a chapter and make it exposition or make it. This is what happened back in 1994. And you know, he, he's giving history. Yeah. Usually they call those info dumps. Yeah. He's, he's giving he, like, you'll have, you'll have short bursts of really interesting stuff. The whole time he's in the dungeon going around talking about dungeons and dragons and how he's got, you know, how he's dealing with, the, the Lich King and stuff like that. Interesting shit. And then we go back to an info dump. And I'm just like, stop. It's like a start, stop, start, stop. You know, and I'm just like, come on, man. You're just now getting interesting. You're getting, you're, this is the stuff that I like. And then you have to go back and start explaining or world building. And I'm just like, come on. It kind of brings the story to a halt a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So to me, the way I see that, I think you're right. But I don't think we can tell whether that brings the story to a halt unless we know how well those things weave back into the story. Right. Right. Like when you, when you, when you detour to go back to Ogden Morrow, like, okay, I'm trying to think this is probably important. I mean, if it wasn't important, they wouldn't divert to it. So I kind of, I kind of like when they do that because it's like, here's your main story. Now here's a tidbit. How do you think this backstory is going to link into the regular story? That's that's my question. You know, when we're going through Morrow's background and his wife, I'm like, what what is the meaning of this? It's not random. It can't be random. And I don't think it's just poor pacing. I think it's I think it's probably intentional. It, I mean, it, it very well could be. I just find it slightly jarring. Yeah, because I mean, uh, yeah. It I I breezed through the chapters that was basically explaining the plot that that was basically you know playing out the plot, and I would be like, oh god, we're going we're doing another info dump here. I'm like, all right, well, I mean, let's. I'm not I'm not saying that the info dump stuff is not is not uh, interesting. It is, but mm-hmm. I'm just like, I, I want to get back to you know dungeoning and you know questing and bullshit like that. Um, and I just it, yeah. Go ahead. I think it really comes down to how well done it is because, you know, a couple of parallels that I see are you could say it's kind of like in Persona when, you know, you've got your dungeony bits and you've got your, you know, your, your juvenile at school bits. And, you know, some people could play a game like Persona and hate the dungeons and be like, oh, I just want to go back to social links or vice versa. 
but you know if they're both done well ideally you'd say oh i love the backstory now now the main story's enriched and then oh i love the main story because you know we're progressing things you know we're coming to a head you know we've got ioi bad guys out there you know and so do do both of those things weave together to make a better whole like they do in persona or not i think is the real question right or Similarly, the, the the book I just finished before starting this was The Devil in the White City, and that's a book that is very clearly two stories just intertwined. It's essentially the story of H.H. H. Holmes and the story of the architects leading up to the World's Fair in 1893. And I think, I think a lot of people could read that book and say, yeah, I just want to hear about the serial killer. Stop giving me stupid backstory about Chicago in the 1890s. I don't give a shit. You know, get back to the murder story. But, you know, if it's well done, and I think in both Persona and Devil in the White City, both halves are well done. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's that excitement like that I mentioned when we were playing Persona. You know, when I'm in the dungeons, I'm, lo- I'm enjoying it, and I can't wait to get back to the social links. And when I'm doing social links, I'm leveling it up and can't wait to go test it out in the dungeons. And so do they build off each other or not? I think is the question more more so than should there be info dumps because I think there has to be. But if if they're not well done and they detract from the story, then that's a clear negative. But I don't think just because their backstory means they have to. That's true. I don't I don't know how I feel with it yet. Like if this stuff does loop around and finally intertwine with the story, I'm good with that. I get that yeah. some of it is world building, but. Um, like you know, obviously the stuff with Ogden. I'm like, sure, then he must have play a part in this later on. Has to, right? I mean, why, why would besides, they, they, yeah, and they mentioned that it was a mysterious split. We don't really know why he and Halliday stopped being friends. I don't think. No. So obviously, there's something there, right? There's some mystery there that they're going to have to answer at some point in this book, right? Do you have any other issues? Uh, yeah, but the, the other issue is sort of a, a lesser one, and unfortunately some of the best – or my evidence for it comes from the next chapter 14. And it's essentially just I, – I don't feel like a lot of the characters are fleshed out. Now, I, granted, they are sort of secondary characters, but essentially his aunt I think is kind of pointless. Like I don't think that she's a fleshed out character. I think the guy from IOI that he goes to visit, Sorrento, is not a fleshed out character. And even uh, Miss 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 Gilmore or Gilworth or whatever her name is, you know, but that that was one tiny short weird scene, and that's it. And so I, I, the book feels a little unbalanced to me. Like you've got these main characters who who hog up the majority of the you know screen time or page time. But then some of the secondary characters I feel like are weirdly under fleshed out. Right. More of like background characters than anything. Yeah. But, but again, it's a background character, I think, by necessity, but they don't have to not be fleshed out just because they're background characters. Okay. And so, so you didn't read any farther? No. Okay. I won't, I won't say anything then because the, the rest of that argument, uh, we'll get to soon. Okay. But those are really the main things. Like I have, I have some issues with sort of the the world. I have some issues with the characters, and I have a major issue with the major character. 
Well, that being said, I, I do really enjoy the book, the story, the adventure, the puzzles. So I, I'm enjoying it. Although most of what I've said so far, I guess, has been negative. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm torn with the references. So the constant, like, it feels almost like he's like the, the author's throwing it in your face a little bit too much. Yeah. Also that I think that could be possibly there is some obviously publishing stuff saying, Hey, you need to explain this stuff. But at the same time, like, you know, when he's quoting you know, movies from the eighties, like I get it, you know, a lot about the eighties, we get it. Um, but then there's sometimes where it's really clever. And, yep. then, and then on top of that, like, I, I couldn't stop reading when he was going through the dungeon and 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 doing you know the Lich King stuff. That was that was some of the most enthralling I've read, and I was like, I want more of this, you know, because yeah, Dungeons and Dragons is a is a eighties kind of reference, but he was referencing very small details of of the dungeon and and uh, how the module worked and how Dungeons and Dragons worked and it, it kind of, you know, because it, it resonated with me. I was like, okay, that's really cool. Yeah, I resonate yeah. I resonate with War Games. I've seen that movie a couple of times, but, I mean, yeah, he played through War Games. Okay. You know, it, it didn't resonate with me as much as, I guess because I'm not that into War Games. I don't know. Yeah. So. Well, you almost might be stuck where the, the more of this stuff you get, the more you like the book. Exactly. So, um, and here's the thing is that I've seen the trailer. Um, I've seen the trailer a couple of times just so I could see like, Oh, I can get these references. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot more quote unquote modern stuff or stuff from the nineties and possibly two thousands mm. in the movie. Because if it's all just eighties references, you're not going to get kids to go. You're not going to get teenagers to go. Yeah, you, you, and I, you're only going to get like forty and thirty year olds to go. Yeah, which is sort of interesting in the way it ties back to the in in game in book justification, and like that that was the sort of the same argument uh, that that Halliday had, and the fact that he he had this issue where he was always upset. You know, I, we didn't talk about when they did Halliday's backstory, but you know, they, they did go through his backstory a bit and he was, I guess, also kind of a prick and he got real upset when people didn't get his references and he would fire people when they didn't get his references. And he was just like generally unhappy when people didn't understand his level of geekery. And so that's sort of one of the reasons it seems like he set up this whole Easter egg challenge was to force people to like the stuff that he likes. Right. Because otherwise people just. You know, it wasn't the 80s anymore. People didn't care. And so it it's almost weird that he was, like, so upset that people didn't like what he liked that he set up this whole elaborate thing to get people to agree with him. Right. And that, that that's another thing that it strikes me as a little bit dickish. Yeah. But at least, you know, that being said, at least there's an in-game justification for – or in-book justification for, you know, for, for why everybody's – into the eighties like that. So I, I wonder that there's not going to be anything like that for the movie. Although I do think it's interesting. I didn't even know this, that, um, 
that Ernest Cline created like a, a series of quests in real life to coincide with when this book came out. Really? Yeah. So uh, the grand prize was a DeLorean, an actual like re- refurbished DeLorean, and they, they 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 came out with almost like an ARG where they had a bunch of quests and you had to like figure out the quests. I I missed all of that. I wasn't paying that much attention to the book, I guess. When you know in 2011 or so when it came out, how did he afford it? I mean, this is his first book, right? Uh, yes, his first novel. Yeah. How the fuck did he even afford to do this shit? If he was, it like, could have uh, been. What? It could have just been part of the marketing money for the book. It could have been, but damn, that's just a hell of a marketing ploy for for a a book from an unknown author. Yeah. Hmm. Well, but they had they bought the rights like immediately to make the movie, I think. Really? So, I mean, I think they knew they had something here. Okay. I am curious more about that though because that that that's a really cool tie-in to me that 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 they would go out and and sort of make like almost an ARG in the in the theme of the book that just came out. <laughs> right. So, uh we got a few emails. I want to read them out. Um the first one comes in from uh, William. And it says here, uh, Ready Player One has been recommended to me in the past, but with the release of the trailer, I've finally been motivated to read it before the movie releases. I'm us holding... too. What's that? I said us too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm holding out on the trailer until I'm done, ready to avoid yep. spoiling anything. I am as well. I haven't watched it, and I'm not planning to watch it until I finish the book. So far, I've seen nothing from the trailer that is in the book. Oh, really? I will go ahead and say that. The, in fact, the reason why I say that I think the movie is going to have more uh, 80s, 90s, and 2000s references is because I've already seen stuff in the trailer that is obviously from the 90s and 2000s. I mean, I think in principle, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Like, because I, I know. Keeping with the theme of the book. I know I have seen Duke Nukem. Um, I have seen the Iron Giant, which I think came out in like 1999. So there's there, there's multiple things that obviously are from a different time period than what we have seen so far in the book. So here he says uh, the Ghostbusters reference right away caught my attention, but Klein continuously hurls so many references out there; it's been difficult to really enjoy any of them. I just felt like the beginning. In the beginning, the writing was way too pandering to me, and I assume anyone else in the same age range as me. As the story has progressed, I've enjoyed the dystopian future Klein has created, but really wish he would have explored that more instead of bar- <laughs> badgering me uh, with all these references. The quest to get the copper key has probably been my favorite part so far, but the part with uh, clearing the first gate by role-playing in a seem to be a bit much. Uh, it's almost like he's being rewarded for conforming to someone else's ideals or something. I don't know. It just rubbed me the wrong way since that seems like the exact opposite of the experience Oasis is trying to give. After I started reading Ready Player One, I found out Klein was the writer on the Fanboys movie, that came out in the last five to 10 years. I didn't really ever feel the need to return to that movie. And I'm thinking the same thing about this book. Although I will probably, although I'll probably still want to watch ready player one movie. 
I hope the story gets better as it goes along, but I'm not expecting too much at this point. Kind of a letdown considering how hyped this thing has been over the past few years. It almost seems like Klein tried to write his own Scott Pilgrim, but mix a little fallout in. I'm kind of liking the overall arc of the story. It's just the details that's killing me. Final thought, the amount of research and uh, Wayne's ability to retain all the information, or excuse me, Wade, he put Wayne, but it's Wade, uh, ability to retain all the information is complete horseshit. No way, yep. <laughs> no way he could play out any movie on demand just like that unless he's been practicing for weeks. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, There is a suspension of disbelief you have to have while reading this book. Uh, our next one comes in from Chad, and this one is a doozy. Yeah, I mean, from that first email, though, I, I, I kind of feel the same way. Yeah. I kind of agree with pretty much all of that. The the details are kind of left out, and he just basically... Because, see, this, this book goes by so fast. The first 13 chapters I read in two days. And I was just like, man, I'm getting through this book real fast. And I was like, because it feels like he skips some beats. Yeah, like everything in the real world, essentially. Yeah, like uh, like the week. Th there's a week span where other people have joined the scoreboard as well as he's become kind of world famous that we don't even talk about. He says, oh, a week passed and now I'm talking to IOI. And I was like, well, shit. Can't you go into detail about like what it's like to feel like you're fucking famous, dude, or, or something like that, or you know, as it, it it was like, oh yeah, I, I signed, uh, I got a deal for uh, some sponsorships, and I signed for that, and now I'm going to go talk to IOI. I'm like, well, hell, what the fuck happened in between there? Yeah, you know. Yep, and I do agree that sort of the 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 quest bits for me, the quests and the puzzles are the most interesting bits, and in the I'm sort of at the point where I'm shifting my expectations more towards as long as those three are good, I'll consider it to have still been a, a, a good read. Right. So <clears throat> let's go into uh, Chad's email here. He says, uh, let me first say how happy I am that you guys decided to cover Ready Player One. Uh, like Drew, I didn't consider myself much of a reader a few years ago. However, this book made me a convert, and I now usually read a chapter or two of something per day. As I just mentioned, the first I first read this book a few years ago. At the time, I heard a lot of people gushing about it, but like I said, I didn't used to have much interest in reading. I had a hard time focusing or I would get sleepy. I remember that I got this book as a birthday present from my older brother. He didn't tell me anything about it other than I just had to read it because he knew I would like it. I held on to it for a while before I cracked the spine, but eventually I started to give it a go. Just within the first few pages, I knew I had something special. Uh, I was in love with, uh, immediately declared the story to the story in my best Rick Astley-esque impression. <laughs> I will never give you up. I will never let you down. I will never desert you. I held true to that declaration because I couldn't put the damn book down until it was finished. Uh, the level of detail provided by Ernest makes it extremely easy to picture everything he's describing. Even during the description of the video portraying Halliday's last will and testament, I had an image of James Cromwell in my mind, dancing to the John Hughes-esque setting with the super cheesy video effects and transitions of the 80s. And yes, I'm sure we all thought that they were totally tubular at the time. 
Speaking of which, the references in this book are amazing, entirely true, and completely accurate. This book cannot exist without the references. Rest assured, Jay, the references in this book are not inserted for the simple purpose of compensating for weak writing. But I completely understand that you are, I completely understand what you're talking about in relation to other forms of media. When you think about it, Halliday is basically Ernest Klein. How else would he know all the background information to reference for the book? I don't, what? Have, I have not read these emails. I don't know. Hopefully there's no spoilers in here. <laughs> Uh, we'll find out. Uh, this book is basically a, what now? He mentioned James Cromwell. Is he uh, is he part of the movie? Does he play Holiday in the I, trailer? I don't know. That you don't see Holiday in the trailer. Because Seriously, I don't, dude, maybe you can watch that trailer and nothing spoiled for you. Because I don't know if that's out there, but that's exactly the guy that I pictured as Holiday. James Cromwell. Uh, let me take a look. And it's probably because I just watched uh, Star Trek First Contact, and there's a part where he's dancing around. You know, he's kind of a drunk in that movie. Okay. And he's, like, dancing around before, you know, before they're doing their last day of testing for the, you know, for the first FTL ship. Um, but that that scene where he's dancing is the only thing I was picturing during the video because when you, when they're doing this sort of – I think they call it like Anorak's invitation in the beginning. His sort of his uh, his not suicide note, but his invitation to start the Easter egg hunt. They talk about how he was dancing in that video, right? And that it was surprising. But that you know, for some reason, James Cromwell is exactly the only person I was picturing there. And now I wonder, since Chad mentioned it as well, if you know, is that is that just because he's described to sound like James Cromwell, or has he been attached? or linked to playing it and sort of unknowingly I just picked up that he is playing Holiday. I'm not sure. The man playing Holiday is a guy named Mark Rylance. Okay. I, I don't know why then, but I 100% completely agree with you. And that's almost eerie, Chad, that <laughs> we're picturing exactly the same guy playing him. Hang on a second here. I don't know. That That does. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it says this book is basically a love note for Xennials, a somewhat underrecognized mini generation of people born in the mid seventies to the mid eighties, myself included. We were provided with the unique honor and privilege of having a wholly analog childhood, where uh, and were the first uh, early adult pioneers of the digital future. Because of this, I'm not sure if our reading experience is overly enriched versus the younger generations that might not like the book as much because they probably don't have the firsthand experience of growing up with all the references material. Regardless, and in spite of dripping hyperbole, hyperbole I always read it wrong, <laughs> hyperbole, hyperbole, uh, within this email, I think uh, Mr. Klein is entirely deserving of his status as a pop culture deity. Uh, I, for one, remember playing adventure on Atari 2600 at a friend's house in my early childhood and accidentally finding Warren Roberts Robnett's Easter egg. I remember Oingo Boingo and knowing the front man for the band was none other than Danny Elfman, a self-taught composer who later became the winner of multiple Grammys and Oscars for his unique music style, most recognized for his works with Tim Burton. 
or how about the unbelievable references uh, for the Atari Sword Quest contest, which, hey, I knew about that because I watched the Angry Video Game Nerd. Um, let's see here. And everybody out there should go watch the uh, the Sword Quest uh, Angry Video Game Nerd series because that's actually really cool and very informative, um, which is very real, by the way, uh, where authentic uh, valuable treasures were created for the winners. All of this stuff is very obscure pop culture and entirely true. For these reasons, I consider this book to be a type of literature I refer to as transfictional predictive media. It, confi- it combines non-fictional information intertwined with fictional elements from the not-too-distant future. Similar novels uh, in this genre would include 1984 and A Brave New World, which were required reading for me in school. This, more than anything, is probably what makes this book an important piece of literature beyond just entertainment. Uh, for some forms yeah. of media, such as 1984 and A Brave New World, are regularly, regularly analyzed because they, in some ways, predict elements of socio-cultural advancements or social uh, societal evolution. For example, I remember watching episodes of Quantum Leap in the late 80s to early 90s and thinking of how far-fetched it was when Dean Stockwell would pull information out of the air for Dr. Samuel Beckett. Off the palm-sized computer, he called Ziggy. Almost 20 years later, the first iPhone was invented and full access to the Internet and information sources such as Google and Wikipedia. Oh, and by the way, the voice-activated assistant is named Siri versus Iggy. It's a good example of reality reflecting fictional art forms. You decide. Um, anyway, my point is a virtual utopia is not too, in a not too distant future is an alternative to a bleak reality with real world problems such as resource scarcity, overpopulation, climate change, etc. Uh, it doesn't seem that far fetched. It will be interesting to, to look back at this book in 2030 or 2040 and see how much it might have predicted accurately. In the immediate future, 2018, uh, when the movie comes out, I predict we might see a renaissance of 80s pop culture similar to what is explained in the first chapter. Um, let's see here. I lost my friggin' place. Uh, <laughs> if you dabble in... A, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, just to comment on that, I, I might agree that this ends up... Well, I, I would say, to back that up, at the moment, I don't see enough here to warrant it in the same discussion as 1984 and Brave New World, just because I don't see the message yet. Maybe by the time we get to the end of the book, and there, you know, if there is, you know, a message, if this is going to have some long-term resonance to it, you know, maybe it makes it to that level. I don't think it does just by the inherent fact that it's got a lot of references in it. Uh, I think they need to add up to something more than just the sum of the parts, but we'll see. I mean, it, it's too early for me to say whether I, I think that it will or won't because I just don't know where where the story is going yet. Like, I, for example, there hasn't been any real comments really on the whole X outside of the Oasis. So all of the real world, there hasn't been a whole lot of commentary on that yet in the book. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is like uh, they uh, Artemis asks um, asks uh, Wade, "What would you do with all that money?" And he mentioned like, "Oh, buy a mansion and all this other stuff." And she was like, "Well, I'd probably try to solve world hunger." Yep, which is another one of the questions. Apparently, another question I had is that apparently this gregarious game systems has billions of dollars. Why don't they spend some of that money to try and fix the world? 
I ask a good question. They've got all this money. Essentially, everybody's jacked into it, so they have essentially an unlimited supply of money, right? They've right. got this ridiculous revenue stream coming in. They're the only providers of it. How did nobody in that company decide to maybe help the world out a little bit? Well, I don't. I, don't, I can't answer that question. I, I will give you a prediction of the lesson this book is trying to teach, and I think it's going to be a cautionary tale against technology. Ah, go figure. It's like sixty percent of all sci-fi. It's, it's true, but I mean, I, I feel like it's going to be one of those. Uh, you experience your life inside this machine when you should be out there doing it yourself in the real world. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I have a feeling that's what it's going to be about. Then again, it may not be yeah. anything. True. Supposedly, there is a sequel coming. He is working on a sequel called Ready Player Two. So I don't know. Uh, so here, da, da, da. Uh, if you dabble in stocks, start investing in companies like Hot Topic and Spencer's because merchandising shit following this movie is probably going to beef through the roof. I just, I sure hope Mr. Spielberg does this movie justice. He usually does, and he probably will. I'm really glad you guys seem to be enjoying this book as much as I did when I first read it. By the way, it gets even better, and I look forward to your future discussions. Awesome. Just simply awesome. Thanks, Chad. I'm of the current mind that it's more a very interesting experiment than it is a great book so far. But we'll see. Okay. So our last email comes in from Jamie. And this is just, this is like I'm reading the book. Uh, she says, uh, <clears throat> life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. So I'm glad you guys decided to read this book. I am one of those odd people who likes to read a book before the movie comes out just because I like to see how different people interpret the same story. I'm hoping this movie does the book justice. I read this book a few years ago. I got it in a loot crate and figured I might as well read it being a free book and all. I was born in the 80s and generally don't remember much from them, mostly spandex and big hair and vague memories of my older cousins getting ready to go out. I do, however, have a lot of... I have a love for many things 80s, specifically movies. I like the Beatles probably because I saw Ferris Bueller dance to them in a parade. I know it's a Beatles cover, and it's not the, but that's not the point. I wanted to be Andy in Pretty in Pink, and I don't care what H says, Lady Hawk is a work of art. Some, <laughs> some people fault this book because it has it's so heavy on the nostalgia, and you know what? Who cares? It's fun to read. I grew up in such a small town that we didn't have an arcade, and the closest one was over an hour drive. I didn't go much, and when my uncle did bring me in, I felt really out of place as it was full of teenage boys who were good at those games. I never played some PC games. Oh, excuse me. I played some PC games, but never mastered them because all I played were demos. What I'm trying to get at is uh, God. What I'm trying to get at here is that I don't know all the games he references in the book, but that doesn't matter because I think he does a great job of showing his passion for them, which is what the book is all about. It's got heart. That's what the '80s were all about. I still throw up uh, my fist when I hear "Don't you forget about me." Um, I say "Fry, fry, fry" when I'm trying to get someone's attention. I don't know that reference. I'm sorry. Do you know it, Matt? Nope. Okay. Or maybe I'm reading that wrong. F R Y E. Yeah, I don't. Sounds like. 
I don't get that reference. Jamie, you're going to have to, I'm a bad eighties trivia person. I don't know that one. Uh, when I'm trying to get someone's attention and when people don't get my lame jokes, I find it inconceivable. I know that one. You keep using that word. Uh, I can't, <laughs> I can't say that for the nineties and two thousands movies of my teens, like American pie, she's all that. And 10 things I hate about you. I liked those movies when I was a teenager, but I don't quote them or rewatch them. Uh, this book is all is for all of us who know that the DeLorean needs to get to 88 miles an hour to time travel. Uh, that you need to con- uh, you need to contest to three to use the oh yeah <laughs> countess to to three to use the holy hand grenade, uh, and that you can never feed a Mogwai after midnight uh, because every one of us is a brain and athlete a basket case, and a princess, and a criminal. Uh, to those people who have hate on for this book slash movie, and to all those who also hate this reference, heavy email, pardon my French, but you're an asshole. <laughs> Jamie, I know that the Holy Grail was from the 70s, so sue me. And also it says, you're still here, it's over, go home, go. And there's a picture of Ferris Bueller looking at the camera, telling them to go home after the credits. Thank you for that email, Jamie. And please explain to me what the Fry reference is, because I don't know. I was born in 85. I don't remember the 80s, really. No. Me either. Born in 83. Most of my nostalgia is for the 90s. Uh, Mine is too, but I know a lot about the 80s stuff, because, you know, I went back and watched that stuff. I fucking love Ghostbusters and, and Gremlins and... Uh, pretty much everything like that, but at the same time, I I fucking love Power Rangers, you know, the old school Power Rangers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and uh, you know, you go far up, you know, to tsunami days when I was a teenager and fucking you know Dragon Ball Z, shit like that, you know. So yeah. it, it almost depends on the media as well, yeah. Because you know, a lot of those things you're talking about are what I remember, and the movies, you know, '80s movies, I think are almost untouchably good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of even the old arcade games, I didn't spend that much time with it. I have not spent much time playing Joust. I don't think I've actually played Joust before. You know? I think it's on the PSP. I think I played it on a PSP compilation. You may have. I know, um, I think- but I don't, I don't, like, you know... Uh, yeah, I played some of those arcade games, but see, th- that was the thing. It was a perfect example was that they were, they used to, him and H used to play Joust to, to settle disputes, right? But they said, after I got so good at Joust, we then switched to Street Fighter 2. I was like, hey, now that's a game I get, Street Fighter 2, you know, because that yep. was 1992, you know, I was, I was playing Street Fighter 2. Um, which. And that's why if they, if they morph the movie a little bit, I don't think it will be terrible. You know, if they brought in the references a little bit, it's still in keeping with the idea of Halliday. Yeah. You know, it just might not be quite so 80s focused. I don't think that would detract from the movie. Right. I think I, and that's, and that's why I'm kind of excited for the movie because I feel like it's going to have some more 90s and 2000s trivia in it. Um, and that's totally fine by me because I, I do have a lot of nostalgia. I mean, you know, like I said, my most nostalgic year is 1998, you know, with Resident Evil 2, fucking Metal Gear Solid, you know, those kind of games. If I see fucking Solid Snake in this movie, I may lose <laughs> my shit. 
I will lose my shit. So yeah, that's 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 the thing for me, you know. Um, but I have a ton of respect for the '80s, particularly the movies. You know, yeah. I've I've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off a ton of times. You know, Ghostbusters and tons of other stuff like that. You know, all the horror movies, Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street, all that stuff. Which you see Freddy Krueger in the movie, or you see you <laughs> see him in the trailer just for a brief second. He gets yeah. shot and then turns into coins. I just rewatched most of that series as well, so I'm I'm ready for some Freddy Krueger references. So yeah, um, that's the, yeah that's 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 it for this episode. Um, so far, I'm enjoying the crap out of the book. I yep. see. I, it's, it, it's a fun read beyond any you know whatever whatever negatives I have with it. It is a, it is a fun book to read. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the thing that got me was like I'm enjoying the crap out of this book, even though I see the flaws. But I can look past them because uh, not not only just because of the references, but because the the actual story of him going through his quest is fun. You know, uh, I get that there has to be exposition, there has to be backstory and stuff like that, and sometimes it's a little ham fisted. But the the overall story is fun to me, and uh, that's what I really enjoy about it. Uh, but yeah, thank you all for those emails. And if you'd like to send more emails, it's uh, Drew at ZTGD.com. Um, we're we're going to be reading the next 13 chapters. So to chapter uh, 36, or am I, am I counting it wrong? 26. 26, excuse me. I, how, how, fucking Magnus, how do they work? Oh. Um, you, you, might, you might be at 26 and then find yourself at 36. Exactly. How fast this book goes by. But, um, well, I will say this. I am enjoying Ready Player One so much that I went ahead and went out and bought Armada, which is Ernest Klein's next book. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've had Armada for a while. Um, yeah. I, I may want to read it immediately. Just waiting to see at the moment on yeah. how Ready Player One plays out. How this plays out. Yeah, and that's what I was going to do. I was like, I'm going to wait until I see. Obviously, I can't read two books at the same time. I'm saying like I can't play fucking two games at the same time. But, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I was like, all right, I want to see more of what this guy does. So, you know, he's won me over so far. Um, but yeah, you can also tweet to us. I am at DML Fury. Matt is at REMGS and the podcast itself is at ZTGD Phoenix down. Um, but yeah, definitely send some more emails because I, I like hearing these, uh, these great references and, um, Jamie, please answer me on what that reference was because now it's driving me crazy. I should just Google it, but I'm not going to Google it. I will not Google it. I want you to answer it. So there you go. Um, but yeah, that's it. We will be back next week, uh, to, uh, go through the next third of the game, of game. Yeah, <laughs> fuck it. We'll go through the next third of the game. And, uh, we probably will get roughly a third of the way through the, uh, egg quest anyway. So I guess yeah. it is a game. That's what I'm thinking too. So yeah, but that's um that's it for us. Until next time, I am Drew. And I'm Matt. And we're out of here. You guys have a great week and we will be back with the continuation of Ready Player One. Mm-hmm.